Hello, and welcome to the Pages and Popcorn Podcast. The podcast where we, Jennifer and... Kalia. Two book nerds talk about movies based on books as well as the original source material. Two warnings. This podcast uses barnyard language. Why limit ourselves to only nice words? Some things warrant not-so-nice words. Also, spoiler warning, we will be talking about the endings of both book and movie, so prepare yourself. Okay. Let's get into it. It's the Pages of Popcorns Podcast. Jennifer and Kelia will edify you. It's the Pages of Popcorns Podcast. Jennifer and Kelia are gonna talk, so you'd better damn well listen. Hello and welcome to the Pages and Popcorn podcast. Today's episode will be a Christmas story because that's timely and we are nothing if not timely. Right, Jennifer? Oh, of course. Okay. Super fast before we even start. I don't think either one of us are the traditional Christmas celebrator people, which makes this like timely, but a little bit ironic. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we're more into the pagan aspects of it. Yeah. Happy Yule, everyone. (laughs) Um, Okay. Anyways, today, yes, we will be discussing a Christmas story. Before we do that, I am going to just remind you that we have a uh, website at kmmamedia.com. That's k-m-m-a-m-e-d-i-a.com, where you can find show notes, links, ways to support us, which include our shop, Uh, Probably too late to order for Christmas at this point when you're hearing this, but uh, it's always a good idea to buy those birthday presents for next year. We also have the page where you can sign up to be a patron, and we have a couple different levels of patrons, $1, $5, and $10, and each level gets you a different bit of perks, so make sure you check that out. And of course, the main way that we would love it if you could support us this way would be rating and reviewing us wherever you listen, and then sharing us with your friends, colleagues, neighbors, other friends, ex-lovers, the postman, you know, all your Facebook friends. Just share, share, share. Holidays are about sharing and consumerism and um, and sharing <laughs> and eating and good sharing food. And sharing in consumerism. And sharing in consumerism. So share our store with your friends. No, But uh, really, if you could like us on Facebook and share our posts and tell your friends to listen to us. Or buy your favorite person a Patreon to our show. There you go. That would be awesome, too. It would be, it would be great. It would be helpful. It would be fun. You'd feel good about you. We'd feel good about you. You know, it's just, it's a, it's all around winning situation going on right there so a christmas story is the 1983 american christmas comedy film directed by bob clark and based on gene shepherd's semi-fictional anecdotes in his 1966 book in god we trust all others pay cash with some elements from his 1971 book wanda hickey's night of golden memories and other disasters To prepare for this episode, we read the 2003 A Christmas Story Anthology, which we will link in our show notes, which included the following short stories or essays, Duel in the Snow or Red Rider Nails the Cleveland Street Kid, The Counterfeit Secret Circle Member Gets the Message or The Asp Strikes Again, My Old Man and the Lascivious Special Award that Heralded the Birth of Pop Art, Grover Dill and the Tasmanian Devil, 
the grandstand passion play of Delbert and the Bumpus Hounds. Here's a bit of background. The holiday film, A Christmas Story, first released in 1983, has become a bona fide Christmas perennial, gaining in statue and fame with each successive year. Its affectionate, wacky, and wirely realistic portrayal of an American family's typical Christmas joys and travails in small-town Depression-era Indiana has entered our imagination and our hearts with a force equal to It's a Wonderful Life and Miracle on 34th Street. I obviously did not write that last paragraph. Because the movie was based on the short stories and essays, I will do a recap of each of the short stories that are in this book and then a recap of the movie. So... Here we go. Story number one, Duel in the Snow or Red Rider Nails the Cleveland Street Kid. Adult Ralph. You know what? I'm going to just pause here. Halfway through, I realized he never calls himself Ralph in the book, but because it was Ralphie in the movie, I just like assumed and then which is dumb because it's Gene Shepard. It's obviously Gene Shepard. So I'm going to try to catch. I tried to go in and catch. I didn't try. I could have find replaced and I didn't because I ran out of time. It's easier for clarity. So I'm just going to sometimes call him Ralphie and sometimes call him Gene, but uh, here we go. Our adult narrator, Gene, has a run-in with a crazy liberal vegetarian anti-gun nut who is waging a war on fun. At least that's how he portrays it. This old lady, who's described in the most unflattering ways possible, is railing against the toy industry for promoting guns and violence. She is a classic straw man caricature for our sensible narrator, who then has a trip down memory lane for the Christmas when he, as a child, wanted a BB gun for Christmas. Oh boy, did he want this gun. He would use it to fight bandits and bears. Oh my. He comes up with a variety of ways to get his folks to give it to him, but the reoccurring frame of, you'll shoot your eye out, is often repeated. Though a terrifying trip to Santa, leaving helpful little hints around the house and even writing an essay about it for school, little Jean tries everything. The story also has a healthy dose of hyperbolic descriptions that I realize now are a staple in Jean Shepard's schick. The father yells at the furnace, the mother overbundles the kids, the little brother hides and whines, the neighborhood boys try to outdo each other with what they're getting their parents for Christmas, and Gene plots and prays for the BB gun. He also gets his kid brother a Zeppelin, which is nice. On the big day, Gene gets some truly horrible bunny slippers from his aunt, and then, yes, the BB gun, as a hidden surprise gift just when he'd given up hope. So, of course, the next morning, he goes out, lines up his target, shoots the gun, and the kickback happens, and it breaks his glasses, a.k.a. he has shot his eye out. He blames it on an icicle, gets away with his lie. Present day, Gene is smug. The end. Story two. The counterfeit secret circle member gets the message, or the asp strikes again. This is the story of how Little Jean loved to listen to Little Orphan Annie radio show. At the end of the show, there would be a secret message for all the kids who had a Little Orphan Annie decoder pin, which you could only get if you sent away for it with the silver lining from a can of Ovaltine. Poor Jean's family isn't an Ovaltine family, so he misses out. He's constantly bummed. But lo and behold, one day while kicking a can on his way home from school, he finds a can with a silver thing attached to it, so he's able to send away for the pin. And then he must wait an eternity for the decoder pin to arrive, and then it finally does, and then he's so excited, and then he translates the message and he finally does it and it's an advertisement for Ovaltine. Little Jean is crestfallen. Story three, my old man and the lascivious special award that heralded the birth of pop art. Another adult Jean narrator. This time he's at the Museum of Art trying to pick up on co-eds. See, if you spout intellectual drivel at college girls and pretend to like things that they do, they might just take you back to their pads and boff you and then you can ghost them. Isn't that a swell idea? 
Anyway, his attempt to seduce this one random chick go awry when her friend shows up. Her friend, by the way, is called Stevie and is either a lesbian or an effeminate man. It's hard to tell because Gene is so fucking gross. Either way, Gene has been thwarted, so he eats his luncheon piece and reminisces about his old man and a prize he won when he was a child. See, back when Gene was a kid, his dad did this newspaper puzzles and was pretty good at them sometimes. One time, he got very far into the puzzle competition and he won a big prize. Was it money? No, it was a very large lady's leg-shaped lamp, which was the logo of a popular drink. The lamp was huge and gaudy, and Gene's mother hated it, but his father was very proud and placed it in the window for all to see. Eventually, the mom accidentally broke it. Accidentally, for sure. It was an accident. But oh darn, it's totally broken. And oh no, there's no glue in the house. The dad is not so easily deterred. He goes out and buys glue. Then he spends time trying to fix the lamp, but to no avail. Dad is pissed, and the home is tense for days. The pairs don't talk to one another. Finally, Dad breaks down and says that the room looks nice without the lamp, and Mom says, well, it was very pretty after all, and then the storm has bypassed. Present day, Jean heads out and back to the museum to see if there's any other lonely girls nearby. Story four, Grover Dill and the Tasmanian Devil. So this story starts off with a pseudo-anthropological bent when we learn about how boys must survive the jungles of their neighborhood, complete with bad weather and bullies. One bully was Grover Dill, and he was a meanie. But one day, little Gene had had enough, and he went full-on Tasmanian devil on Dill's ass and not only beat him up, but used a whole hell of a lot of bad language in the process. Swearing to Gene, and especially his mother, is a very big deal. And his mother has heard his swearing. She takes him home, gets him cleaned up, and sends him off to rest, and Gene is freaking out because he knows she hurt him. And she will tell his dad, and then... Well, we aren't really sure what exactly will happen, but we know a few things. Dad has a temper. Dad curses himself. Dad is scary. Like, Gene is freaking terrified of his father. He suffers in fear for hours until dinner time, but then his mom doesn't tell on him. And this makes Gene vomit, like a lot. Dad is mystified why he's sick. Mom knows why Gene is sick. Gene knows why he is sick. He's pretty ill. She tells him she won't tell. He is exhausted. He falls asleep. The end. Story five, the grandstand passion play of Delbert and the Bumpus Hounds. Oi, okay. So in child Gene's neighborhood, a bunch of hillbilly folk move in and well, Gene has nothing good to say about these people. There are pages and pages of classist, prejudiced, vitriol. Basically, according to Gene, they are the purest form of white trash ever. And they did so many white trash things, it was hard to keep track. Think of something gross. They did it. One such thing was that they had a number of dogs. Of course, it is Gene Shepard, so the number goes from 17 to 400. But the point is, they have a ton of dogs. And these dogs are mangy and gross, like their owners. And one year on Easter, the family gets a perfect ham, and the mom cooks it all day, and it's wonderful, and it smells so good, and there's pages of descriptions, and it makes you really hungry for ham. Legit, no lie, I took a ham out of the freezer. It's going to cook in the crock pot tomorrow. But whatever. The dogs get into the house, and they steal the ham, and they eat it, and the neighbors laugh, and the dad is mad, but he can't do anything about them because they're just too trashy. And then they eventually move away in the middle of the night i mean there's a little bit more to it but basically gene's thinly veiled judgmental buffoonery is too much for me and so yeah yeah it's sad that the ham gets stolen but i just ugh. also after the ham is stolen and devoured the family goes out to eat at a quote chop suey place but they don't enjoy it because dad is still so mad 
A few other notes about the book in general. The stories about young Gene are in the Depression era. His family is poor, like super poor. There's lots of passages about meatloaf, red cabbage, the northern Indiana weather, the terrain, life in the 30s. The mom is rather non-existent. The dad is angry and scary. The kid brother is always crying and hiding. Gene is an ass and an adult. And there's a child. And once again, everything is over-exaggerated and hyperbolic. Everything. Again, set in the 30s and 40s, the stories are published in the 60s, so there's a mix of 60s and 40s vernacular and sentiments, and then in the early 80s, they adapted it to be a movie. Here's the movie recap. The film is presented as a series of vignettes, with narration provided by the adult Ralphie Parker, Gene Shepard, reminiscing on one particular Christmas when he was nine years old. Ralphie only wanted one thing that Christmas, a Red Ryder Carabine Action 200-shot range model air rifle with a compass and a thing on the side that tells time. Ralphie's desire is rejected by his mother, his teacher, and even Santa Claus. They all give him the same warning, you'll shoot your eye out. Ralphie has daydreams about protecting his family from bad guys dressed like mimes with his BB gun. He also writes an essay about it for his teacher and daydreams about her being overcome with his magnificent prose. The old man, Ralphie's father, wins a major award in a contest, a table lamp in the shape of a woman's leg wearing a fishnet stocking. The old man is overjoyed, but Mrs. Parker is not. The Battle of the Lamp develops ending with Mrs. Parker accidentally destroying it, much to the old man's fury. Unable to fix the lamp, he defeatedly buries the remains in the backyard. The old man also fights a never-ending battle with the malfunctioning furnace in the home. His frustration causes him to swear quite often, including one profanity-laden rant heard as gibberish that the adult Ralphie says is still hanging in space over Lake Michigan. Ralphie and his friends Flick and Schwartz are tormented by the neighborhood bullies Scott Farkas and Grover Dill. Ralphie eventually snaps and beats up Furcus while cursing up a storm. Mrs. Parker catches him mid-fight, and Ralphie expects her to tell the old man, but she doesn't. Flick accepts a triple dog dare from Schwartz to stick his tongue onto a school flagpole. His tongue freezes onto the pole, requiring assistance from the police and the fire department to free him. Although their teacher, Miss Shields, to some extent knows how it happened, nobody confesses or blames anyone, and then the incident is completely dropped without any further mention. After getting a Christmas tree, while attempting to help fix a flat tire on the way home, Ralphie utters a major profanity. He says, oh, fudge, in the film. But it's not fudge that he says. And then when they get home, his mother washes his mouth out with soap. Ralphie, in an act of what he later describes as inexorable official justice for the flagpole incident, blames Schwartz for teaching him the word, when in fact he'd heard it repeatedly from his father. Ralphie's mom informs Schwartz's mom over the phone, who in turn loudly shrieks and then punishes Schwartz immediately, like she beats the tar out of him and we get to hear it over the phone. That night, Ralphie has a tiny bit of guilt, but he is actually more upset about the soap, and he daydreams about going blind from soap poisoning and having his parents be racked with guilt. Ralphie, a fan of the radio program Little Orphan Annie, eagerly awaits the arrival of a decoder pin that he has applied to receive. When it comes in the mail, he uses it to decode a secret message at the end of the day's broadcast. He is dismayed to find that it's only an advertisement for Ovaltine, the show's sponsor. Randy, Ralphie's often crying younger brother, refuses to eat a meal on his own for three years with Mrs. Parker relying on trickery, asking him how pigs eat to get him to eat something. Dressing up for school in the cold weather, Randy must wear so many layers that he can't put his arms down. Christmas morning arrives and Ralphie dives into his presents. He does receive some presents that he enjoys, but he is disappointed that he did not receive the one thing that he wanted more than anything. And yeah, he gets a bunny suit from Aunt Carol and his mom makes him put it on. It appears that all the presents have been opened when his father directs him to look at one last present that he has hidden. Ralphie opens it to reveal the Red Rider gun. There's a nice moment where his father, clearly sentimental, encourages him to load it. 
Ralphie takes the gun outside and fires it at a target perched on a metal sign in the backyard. However, the BB ricochets back and knocks his glasses off. While searching for them, he has indeed shot his eye out, he steps on them and breaks them. He lies to his mother that the falling icicle has broken his glasses. She believes him. It's almost time for Christmas dinner, but the neighbor Bumpuses own at least 785 smelly hound dogs that harass the father whenever he comes home from work. And on this holiest of days, the dogs ruin the family's dinner by tromping through the kitchen and eating their turkey, forcing the family to go to a Chinese restaurant for Christmas dinner, where there is some not at all subtle racism, because tis the season, right? Right. And now Ralphie's in bed. It's Christmas night. He's got his gun in bed with him. The adult Ralphie narrates that this was the best present ever received the end so jennifer how did you hear about this book and movie combo i think everybody knows the movie from the 24-hour tnt which has moved to a different channel but it's the 24-hour tnt movie marathons so did you do you remember you watched it as a child is that it was like was it always was it always on or did you like sit down i didn't have cable for the longest time, just because I lived in the foothills and there was no possibility of it. I'm pretty sure I saw the movie at some point, but it wasn't until I was a young adult that young adult, not as in 13, but young adult as in like 19 that I actually got to watch the marathons. So I, as listeners to the podcast, probably remember maybe that I've said in the past, I was raised without television at all. So but when we would visit other people, sometimes they would have TVs. We visited my grandparents in Utah one Christmas. I think I would have been like eight, maybe eight or nine. And it was on at some point. I was very interested in the peanut brittle that I was eating. I remember that very clearly. And I think the only part of this movie that I really clued into at the time was the oh fudge moment and then the the Chinese restaurant part. And that was about it. I hadn't really seen it. Like I didn't really remember it too much more but it became so ubiquitous in culture like people reference it all the time there's like all these allusions to it and stuff and at some point in my early 20s maybe I think um along with my my ex-husband again I think I've mentioned him on the podcast he was very interested in in fixing the gaps in my cultural knowledge and he had a list of canon movies and some were correct that they were definitely canon Rambo yes that's an important movie to see uh, some were not cough, cough, space balls, but whatever. Anyways, at least now I can say I didn't like it. Whatever. Fine. The point is he, he had me watch it. And, and so we watched it and I don't really remember how I felt about it at the time. I think hey, I was cue probably- my horror face. Space balls is not good. What? No, it's not my kind of humor. It's, it's fine if you're, if you're into that, but I, this I mean, sad it, day, Kalia. To, to put it in perspective, his list of Canon movies had things like, you know, um, The Godfather <laughs> and then Spaceballs. And I'm sorry, but The Godfather is an excellent film and Spaceballs is not. And we can have a whole conversation about what, what canon is and should not be. But I think his point was valid, that it was like a cultural icon. Like there are some things you have to see, even if you don't enjoy them, so that, that you get the references. Because that was big for him. I think that would make a really good supplementary episode. It, it probably probably would. I mean, he definitely had this list. and I And to give him credit, it was important. A lot of the cultural stuff I was really missing out on as a kid and a teenager and in college and stuff, because I just didn't have that shared experience of a lot of pop culture stuff. So I totally get where he was coming from. I just have to, you know, mock him a little bit about the Spaceballs thing. Whatevs. Anyways, we watched this movie and um, I don't really remember at all my 
reaction to it. It was a movie. It was like, okay, now, now the illusions and the references make sense to me and I will move on with my life. And then at some point it was on sale at Target in the $5 bin. And I thought, oh, I should probably have this. It's like a classic, right? And I'm pretty sure I bought it. I have no idea where it is. I could not find it. We're, we're also doing a little bit of a remodel right now. So we could have it. I just couldn't find it. So I had to rent it, watched it again. And because it's supposed to be a kid's movie, I thought I'll watch it with my kid. Well, that was dumb. <laughs> my, my, my child. <laughs> and, and I think there's a reason why it just, it did not appeal to her. And as I was watching it, I was like, this doesn't super appeal to me either. I can see why people like this, but wow. Uh, wow. Okay. But before we get to the end, Let's talk about the adaptation aspect itself by talking about the book, the, the short stories. So you have thoughts about these? Short I have lots of thoughts, but I don't want to monologue here. Oh, okay. So yes, I do have thoughts. One, I think it's important to look at how these stories first came to be where Jean had a radio program and when these were written down, they appeared in Playboy. Because mm. as I was reading one of the stories, I was like, who the hell is the audience for this? He's dating an art girl. This is a great tie-in to Fahrenheit 451, which also appeared in Playboy. I just have to say, sorry. So hooray Playboy. Uh, yes. Who is the audience? <laughs> who? Who? Yeah. So it just, as I was reading, I was like, okay, it's not for kids. An adult looking at nostalgia is kind of meant to be sort of jokey adolescent, but it isn't. And then when it's, oh, it's Playboy, it makes a lot more sense. You know who else is this is written for? This is written for conservative little c conservative men's men who don't like that liberal political correctness because i tell you what the first page of this thing with the first story where he's talking about the old lady and and her war on christmas and her war on on violence and stuff and just the way she is described is it is so offensive and and yeah i was like she up. has a point and you're just treating her like a yeah like a straw man it's it was it's really bad and so i was like wow wow this is like extreme and you know it makes sense that he's talk radio <laughs> i mean not that all talk radio is is uh is conservative it definitely there's a lot of talk radio on both sides but it there is an element of the talk radio performative curmudgeon aspect of these darn California people when they're all vegetarian, liberals, anti-gun, blah, 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 blah. You know, they don't know real America. And I feel like Gene Shepard was like, I'm a real American and my stuff is for real American men who, you know, baseball and the jungle of your neighborhood and your bullies and blah, 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 blah. And okay, so I am neither a man. Uh, in my 60s or lived through the 60s and I'm uh, not a small c conservative I don't know man I'm not his audience that is for fucking sure and all I could feel was that like this is this this over hyperbolic tone I mean you you see it a lot right you see it in in some ways with like Garrison Keillor who was definitely you know came after Gene Shepard but you see in like Dave Barry where it's just like how many words and adjectives can I put into every single sentence because I'm either being paid by the word or it's funny to put all the words into all the sentences and your mileage will vary on whether or not that is a narrative shtick that works for you for me not so much. I'm much more of a less is more kind of person. And I don't feel like just having a bunch of adjectives and $10 words 
and your metaphors, you don't need a, an excessive amount of metaphors to tell a decent story. Okay, so one of the things with that story is there is the irony that she is right. At the end, he does hurt himself. And so I wonder how much of this folksy aspect is a little bit like the Colbert Report, where it was conservative, but not... So he, he has this straw man woman, but in the end, she is right. He does hurt himself with this gun. Well, all the parents are right. But the very last sentence of the story is he's like, obviously people like her aren't winning this war on guns because I keep seeing boys everywhere with their, you know, broken glasses and stuff. So, you know, you can't stop boys from being boys. Like, I don't know. There might've been an element of poking fun at himself, but it definitely maybe it needs a bigger context to get that from this especially as a book ending of this is the first story in this anthology and the freaking bumpuses as the final story this is a man who does not like things that are different from him and it shows this was an interview with uh, gene shepherd is he thought it was funny that people considered a christmas story to be nostalgic for him, it's anti-nostalgia. It's poking fun at nostalgia. Before this film came out, most Christmas films were A Miracle on 34th Street. It was just very saccharine and sweet. And here's something that isn't. It's poking fun at what we think of as saccharine and sweet. While at the same time, it is very nostalgic. It is creating an America of, oh, wasn't it great at this period of time, even when it isn't because we were innocent and it was cute and it was fun and you got to learn lessons. And it really wasn't that dangerous. The worst they have is a bully. I, okay, I'm going to take exception with your learn lessons bit because of the rest of that, yes, there is this definite element of, of the movie. Now we're talking about the movie because the because the book, you know, he was writing it in the 60s. So that that was its time place. Its point in the 60s was a, like to look back at the past, but also to be, you know, here. And he was on the radio and they said a lot of times he would just talk like he he was improv it was improvised improv yeah so maybe there wasn't a lot of thought invested okay in the 80s when they adapted it i definitely see they were like okay we're not gonna make a schmaltzy you know movie we're gonna be a little bit more real blah 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 but we're also still gonna put it in the 40s and we're gonna have this element of oh simpler time blah 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 and i think in some ways it really works in the movie it works in as an 80s movie looking at 1940 and saying this was like the last good Christmas of this kid because what happened in December 1941? World War II, America gets involved in World War II. So literally this probably was this kid's last good Christmas before a world, another world war, right? Because he would have missed the depression most, you know, he grew up, so it wasn't like a thing that he, you know what I mean? You're aware of it in different ways, but like he missed world war once. So now we got world war two. Then we've got the turmoil of the, in the sixties and the seventies, and then you're becoming an adult and then you're not believing in Santa anymore. And like your innocence is gone and all of that stuff. So I think it works as a nostalgia piece in that terms in the eighties, in the sixties, when the book was written, I don't nostalgia. Sure. But I don't know, man. It's just... So you know how the horror movie Scream was recognized as showing off the genre while also like breaking genre bits and adding genre? Mm-hmm. Kind of like so, hot fuzz. Yeah, that's what this feels like, is it's breaking what was traditional genre nostalgia, but it is also creating nostalgia. The 30s were not great. One of the things I actually did like about the story a lot is the only view we get of the 30s is kids having to be orphaned, 
you know, the extreme poverty. And this showed kind of what it was like for middle-class poverty. They still have a house. They're still a loving family, even with all their foibles. And I think that is a missing picture of what the Depression era was like. Well, okay. So again, though, the book, they're in the Depression. They're like yes. in the 30s, definitely. And, and poverty is a major part of the book. In the movie, the movie is 1940. It, it has a prop that says 1940 on it. So we it's very much pegged into that time. So it's at the end of the depression, things are getting slightly better and it is much more hopeful in that respect, right? And so I don't, I feel like, yes, it is, it is definitely, the movie is about the parents having lived through the depression. And now look at them, they can buy their kids all these presents and they can, you know, have the big turkey and they can do these things. Poverty is not, the th they're definitely middle-class in the movie, in the book, they're poor, like poor, broke-ass poor. It and is a big thing to buy a ham. That is yes. a once a year major thing. They got a ham, they had two turkeys a year. And that was it. Those were, and the rest of the time, it's mashed potatoes and and uh, red cabbage and meatloaf and you know all of this stuff. So, the um, stuff that stretches out food dollars. I think that that was an interesting change to 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 take it out of this poverty aspect and put it into a slightly more hopeful. Which again is like I said, I think it works really well to be like this is the last good Christmas of this kid's life you know, last innocent Christmas, because then we, we as the audience watching it in the 80s, and then for future, know what happens the next year, you know, which is so that's a big, that's just a big difference between the book and the movie. I, I mean, I'm just gonna fucking jump, man, I did not like this book. And I, and I, I have complicated feelings about the movie. But the, but the, I think that the, the changes that they made in the movie worked really well, especially that change right there. Well, yeah, that's what really kind of threw me. First off, I didn't expect it to be all these single vignettes because they're all, I think, very artfully woven together into the movie plot. So you have a movie and then you have all these little subplots within the movie, but it isn't these separate little like comic books. They're an integrated story. Yeah, I don't agree. I felt like they felt like vignettes because they all had their little, their little climaxes. And then they were never talked about again, you know, with the kid with his tongue. And then we'd never come back to that. There's the, the through line. There's like basically only two through lines. He starts off the movie wanting the gun. He ends the movie with the gun. And there's multiple moments that are interspersed where they're running away from the bullies before the mm -hmm. big bully fight. But then we never do anything with the rest of the bully fight. So that bully like never beat him up again. Like there was never any, uh, you know what I mean? Like it felt like it had dropped off because this is like a, this, the whole movie was a vignette. It's just about these three weeks of this kid's life, but those little tiny and like the oval teen thing, here's the thing. Everybody knows this movie. We all know the beats, but do you, but most of us, I would think don't know the order they appear in the movie in because you can walk in and out of this, especially when they play it 24 hours a day. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter when you come in or out of the movie because there's no actual narrative structure that's pulling it all through, except that he wants the gun at the beginning and he gets the gun at the end. Everything else can be completely rearranged. I rearranged it in my recap and you can't even tell. You know what I mean? So like, I vignettes, sure, but it doesn't- There are a couple of little running things like the dogs and you don't need the dog's little plot. And that is woven throughout the whole thing. The, you know, the father's always- Yes, they mention the it early and then they come again at the end. 
but it's there's a lot of stuff that's mentioned early that's never brought up again at the end so it's not like Chekhov's dogs you know where we know there's going to be a payoff this movie is, what like, I mean is that you can see the the turkey stealing scene without having to see all the intermediate stuff with the dogs it just adds a little bit to the story sure so I'll grant you you can walk into the story at almost any time and go okay that's still funny because it's set individually it's not like they he got the lamp early and then there was like three or four scenes of the mom like grumbling about the lamp and then there was the you know four scenes you know about something else and then the like they broke the lamp and and yada yada it, they were all very contained first we've got the thing about the flag but we've got the thing about the bully we got the thing about the lamp we got the thing you know what i mean they're all boom 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 and the lamp is a little bit more extended than that they do have some scenes in between when they're fighting over the lamp and she'll go in and turn it off and they'll move on yeah, and there's there's the car scene. scene yes so she didn't break it the very next day I, i'm just saying that as as the the movie itself is a vignette of these three week period of time, right? This this thing. I took exception with the the idea that it's this very cohesive narrative thing. It because it it really, I think it's woven together well. And again, I think the movie does a really good job of taking these multiple elements, these multiple little stories and putting and like doing the best that it could with the material that it had to make it into a cohesive story that has a beginning middle and end but it just it still was a series of small things that you know ultimately don't matter that much that the payoff wasn't really there for any of them except for the gun and again i'll go back to your your lessons learned i really don't think anybody learned any lessons here well i mean about childhood like the whole thing with the annie decoder ring so that is a myth that, you know, be sure to drink your Ovaltine. In reality, they would give like a little hint of what's going on in the next episode. That was a little orphan Annie, but okay. The thing is, as a child, it's learning about disillusionment. Right, which is exactly what we want in our Christmas movies. Disillusion yeah, the that children. That is true. <laughs> that is true as you grow up as a child. And that's what makes it this, or at least what Shepard would say, would make it an anti-nostalgic, anti-sentimental film. It is very true to growing up. We've all had those experiences and it's incredibly relatable of, oh, I did all this effort and somebody just you know, used it to sell me something. Yeah, no. And that is a great little moment for sure, but it's not really he still wishes for the gun asks santa for the gun the parents come through and he gets the gun so even though there's like a chip away at the the childlike innocence he still has most well, of his it's not the end all you know decimation of childhood <laughs> it's a moment of oh things aren't what i expect and life is still life He's, you still have wonderful things that happen in life along just, with your disappointments right and i feel like like again it's a good scene and it's a good moment and all of that but it's that is part of like a coming of age story and so you get that ralphie's like on the precipice of stuff like that but then there's no actual follow-through like he walks out of the bathroom and he's like okay in the book actually it had a better end line of it because he was like i was like forever changed like he he acknowledges as an adult in the book or in the movie he's just kind of like you know he's mad he's he's disappointed like well whatever but then yeah, he leaves and the next thing that happens is a little brother comes in and drops trow and i mean so like even then the movie's not letting us really stay with ralphie and have that moment we have about five seconds and then there's a sight gag of the kid, the other kid dropping his pants. To me, it's it's the relatability of it. You know, we've all had those moments of, 
oh yeah that's santa it really isn't real and you have that little letdown you know we have those moments and that strikes that chord so you don't have to you know go on and on and on about it no you don't have to but it might have been nice to the santa stuff was interesting mm-hmm. too to making mm-hmm. santa so awful <laughs> it does remind me of david sedaris talking about when he had to play an elf yeah, I literally wrote in my notes, this Gene Shepherd is like, if you like David Sedaris, but you just wish he used more words and was more mis- of a misanthrope, you might like Gene Shepherd. That's literally what I wrote down here. Again, so it is like this, this darker aspect, like there's these darker elements, these more mature elements to the stories, to this kid's experience. Sure. Well, there's also one of the scenes that I liked more as an adult is after the bully scene when you know he stands up to the bully he has his freak out moment and the kids are afraid oh dad's just going to you know whoop him and the way the mom handles the situation is really tactful and it's kind of up to you do you think the father knew what the situation was and just kind of went along with it but there's also that line about ralphie going my relationship with my mom wasn't the same after that see that was great again the movie did such a better job than the book did in the book he's worried he's you know totally terrified then his mom is like i'm not gonna tell him and like but it's in this like almost weird passive aggressive like power trippy sort of way and then he's violently ill and his dad is fucking clueless like what's going on and she's like oh he's fine i mean there's just like there's like dishonesty but there's also like and he doesn't say in the book after that my mom and i had a different relationship that's not at all he no it's just i was exhausted because i had been like through an emotional ringer and i fell asleep the movie makes it so much better there that the mom is covering for him covering for the fight and that he acknowledges that that and now has a special relationship with his mom and we know he's probably going to have a, a, a slightly different relationship with his mom going forward he says that but we also know he's going to have maybe a different relationship with his dad going forward too because of the sentimentality that was wrapped up with the gun and and the, the, the little connection that he had with his dad there, which again was not in the book. When, when he's opening the gun, his dad totally in the, in the movie, his dad was like, there's one extra present. And the mom's like, whoa, whoa, what? The dad's like, oh yeah, you know, Santa must have brought it. And he goes and he opens the gun and it's like all special. And his dad's like, you know, acting out like, okay, you got to put him in. Oh, do you know how to do it? And he's not like helicoptering him, but he's super invested. He's watching mm-hmm. it. It's like the sweetest thing between Ralphie and his dad. And Ralphie's kind of oblivious to his dad, but we as the audience are getting that, that emotional thing from the dad. And the dad says to the mom, I had one when I was a kid. So like, it's this connection and it's really sweet. Not and you in the can book. see the father kind of living his history through his son as well, but and, in a really sweet way. And not in the book, not in the book, none of that, none of that in the book. Well, there's a little bit of, oh, there's a present over there that you missed, Ralphie. There is that. It's just, yeah, the, <laughs> the thing but, with the father but, isn't there. So yes. I do agree. The movie is, to me, it's actually so much better than the book yeah. for a number of icky reasons. I would say the book is invaluable, but it's just really different. It is not something you would read to your kid. No. It's, I mean, I, No. I would say the, the, they both don't age particularly great, but the book ages badly. And the movie is more like slice of life in this time. Like you can like mm-hmm. understand the book. You're just like, oh, holy smokes. There's just a lot of really funny moments. Like the scene where the kid gets his tongue stuck to the okay. flagpole. That's okay, not, go ahead. That's not funny. 
No, what I find funny is Ralphie going, but the bell rang. And it's this childish need for authority against, you know, your loyalty as your friends. Okay, the bell rang, so I'm going to abandon you. And then we're going to go inside and leave you out there. And the teacher's like, where's the kid? And they're like, "Mm, we don't know. We don't know. And I think it's like this little girl who's like, pointing. Thank you. The only time a little girl child does anything in this movie. And and so then the teacher's like, oh my God. So she's horrified. The kid is like, they have to call the fire department. Like he's got this thing on his tongue. Nobody gets in trouble because the teacher's like, I'm sure you feel horrible. No, none of these kids feel horrible. Ralphie doesn't feel horrible at all. He doesn't feel horrible at all. And like, and then later when he narks on the other kid, he lies and says that Schwartz is the one who taught him the word and that kid's getting the tar beat out of him over the phone. Ralphie doesn't feel bad about that either. Ralphie's a freaking psychopath. Maybe maybe that's extreme, but Ralphie is not <laughs> sympathetic. <laughs> I, I found that really troublesome. It was like, oh, is this a simpler time where loyalty meant nothing, where you could just, it was like, you know dog eat dog world or dog eat turkey world or whatever and like you know as long as you get your gun in the end it doesn't matter like i so just, this is the oh, thing you you have an exceptional child i am an exceptional person <laughs> well this is true <laughs> but you do have an exceptional child in that she has a great deal of empathy for her age this has nothing to do with my kid this is me me watching it going that's fucked up ralphie but i can understand children behaving that way bullying is a huge problem the younger children are because they don't have empathy because they don't have those experiences yet to put it in context you are nine when you are nine years old you should know that leaving your friend outside with his tongue stuck to a fucking pole is a shit thing to do that there's no excuse for that kind of bad behavior and there's absolutely no repercussions for it. None. Earlier in the thing, they leave the friend outside to get beat up by the bully and then the kid comes into class late and he's got a fucking black eye and everyone's like, yep, yep, that's the way it is. Like I get, I get kids like banding together as in like against authority because they're you know, like all the kids with the things in their mouth, which I don't understand because I don't know, I'm not in the forties, but like, fine. So they do this, this prank on the teacher by having something in their mouth. And then she's like, give, give me your fake teeth. And they all walk up and they put them in her hand, which, oh my God, disgusting, whatever. So she pops them in her drawer. Okay. Like that's like a group child thing. Right. And the group child thing of like trying to figure out what to get your parents for Christmas, a group child thing of being like scared of the bullies and running. Ralphie goes back and picks up his brother out of the snow. So you have like these built in of like, it's these kids versus the world, except that Ralphie, they let the kid get beat up. They leave the kid up on the pole. And then he, he totally lies for no reason to get this kid in, like, and the, the Wikipedia and a couple things said it was like retribution for the poll incident, but I did not see that when I actually watched the movie. It just seemed like he came up with the first name of a kid that he could. Ralphie's freaking crazy pants. When he lies to his mom about the icicle and then he fucking winks at the camera, he, 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 I got away with it. What the hell? And he still gets his fucking gun at the end. I'm so, like, this is not okay. I see this as being very through the lens of a child, like the super exaggerated fairy tales that he has in his store, in his head. Like, I went blind from eating soap and 
you know, the parents are wailing and the parents are great actors. Like the acting in this movie is spot on the entire time. I will agree with that. The acting is great. His his daydreams are very childlike and hilarious. There's three of them, I think, and they're they're very cute. One that's cut out from the film that would make the poster make more sense where he saves Santa Claus. So if you look at the poster, there's the Santa Claus stuck in the chimney. That was a cutout scene. That was a deleted scene. Right. And it so, was with Flash Gordon, which wowzers. Um, but okay. Yeah. Again, that is childlike. And that is that is great. This other part of childhood that this movie is trying to tell us that there's no repercussions for bad actions, that you can be a complete a-hole to your friends and you can lie to your mom and it's totally cool if you get away with it is is shitty. I don't like it. And I don't like saccharine holiday schlossy movies, but I, I feel like there's got to be a happy. Oh, you know what? There is a happy medium. You know what it is? Elf. Elf. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> I think that goes into, I know Kaleo this well. <laughs> <laughs> I just. There are repercussions. They just, you don't see them that much on screen. There's the see where he has the soap in his mouth, but there's also a lot of implied discipline. So the way they're afraid of their father. Yeah, because that's fucking healthy as shit. Mm-hmm. Well, okay. So again, this is some background from Shepard that he did in an interview. He loved Darren McGavin. So he loved Darren McGavin's acting in this. Darren McGavin's a kind of an interesting guy and he mirrors in some way the author's father or the Frank that was supposed to be in that they're both people who were on their own very young as children who had sort of this hard knock life. So Darren McGavin ran away from home numerous times. He lived with Native American family for a while. The father has sort of the same experiences and I know it's not there in the book. It's what is kind of implied in the backstory. Wait, the I'm father sorry. had this very hard knock life. Yeah. How is how, I the father having a hard knock life is implied where and how except for the fact that we're in the 30s? It was in an interview with Shepard when he was talking about Right, but but in the book that we read and the movie we watched, where's the Okay, so you're doing death of the author, I'm doing that the author has context because this is semi-autobiographical depending on what time you asked Jean. Because sometimes Jean said, oh, yes. And sometimes Jean said, oh, no. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Okay. So semi, there's exaggerations. There's some stuff he made up. Right. It's, it's a novel. Some... Right. Okay. So, yeah. but whatever. I'm sorry. So his, his, this actor is similar to his real life father, sort of. And that's why he likes the actor. No, well, I'm saying um, Jean really liked how McGavin did the acting and then he talked about this backstory that they both have that they can bring to the story as somebody who has something of a similar background where my father did not have an easy childhood I was always really impressed with how well he did as a father even though he failed in multiple ways so I can see that in Frank and Ralphie's dad of he's somebody who's had a really difficult life who's got a lot of hardness there but he's trying to be a loving father so here's the thing frank in the movie is awesome frank in the book is a scary angry drunk okay in the movie he takes such pride in being able to do these little things like time me as i change the tire 
That's freaking adorable, right? This is a guy who obviously lived through the 30s and their kids are like nine and four or five or whatever. So they were having those kids in the beginning and then in the middle of the 30s in the depression. So you've got to look at somebody and be, you're a little optimistic to be happy. You know what I mean? And they've made it. They've like gotten through it. He obviously has a job. He's got a little pocket watch. Like he goes to work, he comes home, like he can take care of his family. He fights the furnace. Like he's, he, he's great. He's a great character and he he's cares about his kid. Curmudgeon. He is. He is awesome. And he's obviously way more tuned into what's going on in the house than he, like, he wants to be all like, ah, I'm not, that's not my thing. I'm blah, 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 blah. But like, oh my God, he knows the kid wants the rifle. He loves that lamp. Oh my God. Which is hilarious. (laughs) Right? Like he's all proud of himself because he won the thing. Like he's taking his, his little wins. And even when they're little tiny wins, like being able to change a tire in four minutes, as major things and the best the absolute best moment of the entire movie which also was not in the book is at the very end before ralphie falls asleep clutching his gun where the parents are sitting there next to the christmas tree watching the snow and frank reaches up and he rubs the mom's back and she reaches around to touch him and it is freaking beautiful and like that is great so again, there are moments in this movie that are great and they're almost all Frank. That's all I'm going to say. <laughs> like, <laughs> that's not all I'm going to say. I'm probably going to say more, but I, I would be surprised if that was all you're going to say. <laughs> put Ralphie in the shredder, drop him down a freaking slide, kick him in the face. Frank is my hero. Frank is the unsung hero of this movie. And he's like trying so hard he's like okay you know what they ate our turkey we're gonna go out to eat you know like he's gonna solve this problem like and he's so pleased with himself and then like the turkey that the duck comes and he's like okay it's it's good it's it's smiling yeah you know he's awesome more frank less ralphie i would be interested to see a movie from frank's point of view yeah but okay so one of the things that sticks out in everyone's mind that's such a great moment and you just mentioned it is the lamp is the battle of the lamp that turns out to be a real thing the lamp was a real life thing they actually did have i've seen them around in antique stores and stuff the lamps with the the leg yeah and they've recreated it because of you know you gotta like reach up under her skirt and pull the thing to make her turn on whoa well i know what i'm getting you for christmas (laughs) (laughs) only if it's like four and a half feet tall otherwise i don't want i don't want no two foot lady's leg seriously that was the best part in the book too really was like what is it a leg but what is it a leg (laughs) you know and they're like is there going to be more body parts in this box like yes it was very cute the fight went between the father and mother though because they're arguing over this and they're trying not to it's very (laughs) passive aggressive oh well i feel a draft and then she'll go over and turn out the leg and then he well what's the weather out there and he'll turn it back on yes yes and like in the book too i mean honestly i thought that 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 story would take away the framing device of trying to pick up the co-eds but that little bit about the parents again it's all about frank i don't care about young gene slash ralphie at all but these parents were great so like they're having their little tete-a-tete back and forth about it and everything and uh and it was and, and like at one point when the mom is like trying to shield the children from the leg like the sexy leg you know she's like putting her body in front of them between the two it's funny i mean it's it's kind of scary when when it breaks and then the dad is like they don't talk for three days they just yell and snipe at each other like that's that's 
scary to function. I don't like yelling. I don't like yelling fathers. <laughs> Kaylee's baggage. It's bad. It's bad news bears. So, okay. But then the dad gets over it, right? He makes the peace attempt. You know, this room does look okay. And she's like, oh yes. And then she can also be kind. It was a pretty lamp, which it wasn't. And she didn't think so, but she's going to like, it's a nice, you know, nice thing to say. Yeah, they're, they're peacemaking. Right. And then it's like, okay. And then that chapter ends with him or that whatever ends with him going, let's go to the movies. Like he's going to take the family out. You know, they're going to do a thing. They're going to like, when in death, we celebrate life, you know? So he's buried the lamp, but now we're going to like cling to good stuff. Yeah. Again. So I, how do you think of that as... As a couple thing, because, you know, you have fights with your spouse, you're kind of angry at each other for a couple days, and then you just sort of get over it. It doesn't have to be a big thing. It's just, okay, we're just going to acknowledge it's in the past. Yeah, I don't really fight with my spouse. Okay, I've had tons of fights with my ex-spouse, which is probably why there's an ex there. I mean, my spouse, my partner, we, we've had a couple disagreements in the past. I know I've told the story, I think, on this podcast of when I, I picked a fight to see how he would act when he got angry because it was very important for me to know Mm. as a self-preservation thing. But no, I mean, I think our biggest fight in the last several years had to do with half and half, honestly, (laughs) over it. Wow. (laughs) I know. (laughs) I feel very strongly about half and half, which will surprise none of you. (laughs) My mouth shut. (laughs) (laughs) I, I... I don't know. Like, I don't think we've ever had a fight where it's lasted a couple of days. I, sure. But, you know, it takes all types, whatever. I'm not going to yuck anyone's yum and people fight and disagree and have different things. But I I get the idea of it being like this, the stalemate thing. And then somebody has to acquiesce because it's not worth continuing to fight about. Ultimately, it's a small moment in a, in a long marriage. Right. So that, that is nice. Again, I thought the lamp part, excluding the framing device of him picking up girls at the museum, was probably the best story in there. And also was the story that had the least to do with little Jean. So again, less Jean, more Frank. Still, I mean, even when they fight, there's so much love between them. Like, you know, she says, we're out of glue. And he says, you used all the glue on purpose. Like, not that she could have lied that they don't have glue. No, it's, you used it all on purpose. And his utter frustration, and he yells out, not a finger. Stuff like that. Like, even when they're super angry with each other, it doesn't go to this horrid level. Yeah, which is weird because, again, like, and there's other stories where his dad is definitely, like, a hitter or a beat-your-ass corporal punishment person. And there's, like, there's definite fear, like... I mean, not to be like all triggered or whatever, but when Ralphie's like afraid of his dad coming home and like he's watching the sun and stuff, I can just say like, you know, it's, that's, that's not a great feeling to be afraid of somebody who, who loves you or is supposed to love you and you love them back and all of that stuff. And I don't want to get too personal or anything. That's why I think his father, I think he knew how to be a father. I think he, that kind of goes with the background that you don't see where he was abandoned, or you can see that in just a lot of older ways of dealing with children spare the rod spoil the child yeah i think he didn't know how to be a better father i mean he was trying sure and that that a lot of people nobody knows how to be a father nobody knows how to be a mother we're not born with this innate knowledge we know but you do have models 
Yeah. And even if you don't, even if you have sucky ass models, then you go, I don't want to be like that. Um, maybe if you're in the fifties, you go, oh, well, this is the way it's always been, blah, blah, blah. Like cultural norms change. I get it. So, okay. So do you want to call, talk about the classism towards oh, the, the, the hillbillies? Oh my God. This was okay. <laughs> Again, because we're reading and doing things out of order. The other book that I'm currently rereading right now is freaking hillbillyology <laughs> which that episode will have come out before anybody hears this episode so whatever but yes so maybe maybe a little extra sensitive to the hillbilly thing but also i think even even if i read this book six months ago i would have just been just horrified by the way he talks about them and the way in the book because they're not they're a non-entity in the movie in the movie they have the dogs the dogs and there's like four of them you know, they show up and they, they harass the dad a couple times and then they show up and they, they steal the turkey. Okay, that's that's the whole neighborhood thing. In the book, it's a very long short yeah. story. And they talk about how they cook that ham for pages and pages. And afterwards, I was just like, fuck, I need a ham. Yeah, I know. I literally have one in my fridge now that's thawing from the freezer. <laughs> Again, the descriptions, when he wants to be descriptive, Gene Shepard can be really descriptive you can be very good at it you know you really wanted that ham but when he turns that power he uses his power for evil jennifer and talks about people he doesn't like in such horrible hyperbolic ways it is really disgusting and and horrifying these people are poor these people are not like them and everything you know oh they're trashy they throw their trash and they spit and they do moonshine and they have an outhouse and oh no and like they have all these dogs and they have all these things and they do this and they do that and they're gross and they're loud and they fight and there's like 400 of them and da, 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 da. i mean we've all had neighbors that we don't like and we've all you know we've all probably had a moment where we're like oh my gosh that's tacky or that's you know whatever about somebody's something or other but this was just really bad it was it was mean-spirited yes thank you it was there was no point in this there, there was just no point in this except to be like they are bad and i am not them and i am good i did have a flashback though we had a neighbor with a loud dog and there were just nights at two in the morning i couldn't sleep this dog's barking so ah yeah. there's nothing we could do about it okay our backyard, because we live in a little suburban area, so there's the people right behind us and then next door and the people behind the next doors, right? So there's basically, you know, one, two, three, four, five yards that encircle our yards, right? Our yard on, on all five sides. Okay, I, I'm, I'm pretending you're nodding along. So anyways, in one corner, there three of the five diagonals have dogs. And I used to try to study or read or do things outside sometimes and these dogs will not have it. They will bark and then they will just not stop barking. And you think, oh, they'll get used to me. I'm just sitting here in a hammock, reading a book, making no noise. They will eventually get used to me, but you would be wrong. I can't even open the window in our bathroom when I'm in the shower without them like going crazy. Like apparently it's very exciting when there's anything that happens on that side of our house to these dogs. So I get it, dog owners out there, I don't know what to say to you. I have a cat, but I don't know. It's weird. It's weird that people just let their dogs bark so much. And I don't, I don't know if they're just a-hole people who like don't know that like, either, you know, that your dog is barking and you don't care, which makes you the a-hole or you don't know that your dog is barking, which means that 
you don't know that about dogs? I don't, I don't know. I, I'm very confused, but again, I have a cat. She makes like no noise, but it's, she it's does kind of on to... par with uh, the screaming kid at the store. I don't think so because either, because that's one of two things. Either the parent doesn't care that the kid is screaming or they're like teaching the kid a lesson. Like you don't get your way because you're screaming. I don't think dogs go, oh, I didn't get my way by barking. So maybe I shouldn't bark so much. Like it, they don't have that cognitive. It's that kind of level of annoyance of, you know, you're creating a problem you should deal with it and i get parents get exhausted i understand that and so i don't want to pick on parents do you from all your from all your child rearing days no i have enough experience with kids that i know it's something i do not want to do full time there are some of us who know that we will not be great parents and we choose not to be parents yay yeah, so I know I don't have the patience for kids, but when you go to a movie theater and your kid is crying and you know that you're irritating everybody, but you don't care. That's the kind of thing where as an outsider, you're like, oh my God, you're creating the problem, but you're not going to deal with it. You're just going to make the rest of us suffer. Huh. Do you remember going to the movies, Jennifer? I remember going to the movies. <laughs> I feel sad now. <laughs> oh, oh, I remember the outside world. <laughs> I know, here we are petting our windows going, I remember you. <laughs> oh, strangers. Yeah. Anyways, but very classist, really uncomfortable reading. The the kids use foul language, which we know is a It's very easy of othering it. of a group instead of trying to understand and bridge and, that gap. And for no no reason. It's just, I mean, the story itself of we had neighbors who had loud dogs who stole our ham is enough of a thing. You don't have to make the neighbors that level of white trash to sell the story of the frustration of the ham being stolen. It's like, it's like it's it's rubbing salt in the wound that it wasn't nice neighbors. It was awful neighbors. It was trashy. They were white trash. And so the fact that they stole our ham makes it even worse, which is gross i hated that last story it was a really bummer way to end this book so i'm going to mention this is why i really don't like idiocracy although it's quite popular it, it feels like it's punching down mm -hmm. so you have a group here that they're obviously struggling you know they're struggling economically because they just rack up a rent and then leave mm -hmm. because they can't afford better yeah, you know, the, the kids aren't getting an education this is going to be a perpetuating thing they're already struggling so let's make it worse and you know be nasty and write terrible things about them so yeah that's stuck in my craw a bit yeah and like you said punching down and there's no reason except for again like you talked about the very beginning of this bringing it full circle back to like who's the audience the audience is people who like to look down on other people whether those are those liberal weird california vegetarians who are trying to take away our guns and all our fun in life or whether they are the hillbilly weirdos that you know white trash that is like maybe a little too close to comfort like maybe you're only a couple steps away from being that poor but you'll never be like them because they are common do you know what i mean so it's it's a very specific choice gene is making choices and i don't like them can we talk about another gene choice that i really 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 disliked <laughs> how could i stop you it's it's also in that it's in the lamp story where uh he's hitting on this girl the, the modern day gene, the 1960 whatever version gene, hitting mm. on this girl. 
gets her off. He's buying her something to eat. So obviously she owes him sex, right? Okay, fair. She says- And he's so manipulative about the whole thing. Oh my God, it's so gross, okay? And then her friend arrives, her friend named Stevie and- (laughs) A feminine boyfriend? Well, okay. (laughs) Stevie, oh Stevie, over here. I turned and saw striding towards us over the marble palazzo past a Henry Moore fertility symbol, a tall, broad-shouldered figure wearing black cowboy boots and tight leather pants. Marcia hurriedly darted forward. I've been waiting, Stevie. You're late. Stevie, her high cheekbones topped by two angry embers for eyes, snapped. Let's go, baby. I'm double parked and the fuzz tag on a Harley Davidson around here quicker than a kick in the ass. Let's go. Her rich bass voice echoed from statue to statue. Marcia, weakly indicating me, said, uh, this is, uh, uh, please to meet ya, bud. Stevie barked manfully, her thin mustache bristling in cheery greeting. They were off arm in arm. Once again, I was alone amid the world's art treasures. You can't win them all. I mean, so first of all, I want to meet Stevie. <laughs> Stevie sounds like fun. Stevie drives oh, a motorcycle. I take a, a ride on that motorcycle. I kind of do, yes. Um, Stevie in the tight leather pants and the motorcycle. And I don't care, Stevie, what your gender was assigned at birth because I'm not exactly even sure how Stevie is presenting themselves in this because it's hard to tell if the female pronouns are being used as an insult to a man or the manly blah, blah, blah he, mustache is being used as an insult to a woman it's like it's impossible to tell with gene shepherd because gene shepherd sucks mm, just mm, grr. okay I think, I, I think i've gotten it out of my system i wonder though uh we've talked about this in the past is how fair is it to judge people at a certain time in history totally fair <laughs> i think it's you can put things in context and be like yeah this was definitely a product out of his time and still say and that time was fucked up i think that's totally fair i i I get your anger at this because it bothered me a lot too it is very playboy sexist this is how we treat women as objects and that's still a continuing thing that we have to deal with but i also want to give him a a little bit of a leeway because there was a lot of ignorance at this time there wasn't a whole lot of positive role models or there weren't allowed to be positive role models so he is kind of a person of his time yeah that's a reason but not an excuse okay yes i agree with that because obviously somebody wised up like people figured shit out and got better and so i don't want to be like if they can do it you can do it but i kind of want to be like if they can do it you can do it right i'm sorry like i know plenty of people in their 70s and 80s who are freaking open-minded people so you can't you know what i mean i hate this idea oh well you know you're old enough that's just the way you were raised so you can't possibly change that's a bullshit excuse if i've ever heard one one of my favorites of that and this is not my own creation unfortunately is people talking about mike pence and they say well you know he's kind of sexist but he's a product of his age and flavor Flav is older than mike pence If Flavor Flav can do it, so can you. <laughs> so that's from Sean Oliver, but it is a great point to make. It is. It is. Thank you. Thank you. Yes. John Oliver. 
Now that's a funny man, <laughs> unlike mm. Gene Shepard. You know who's another uh, person who learned a lot from Gene Shepard and modeled his career after Gene Shepard? Besides Steinfeld? Yes, Steinfeld. And I was like, oh, no wonder I don't like Steinfeld. <laughs> Sorry, he no. has become his own sort of grumpy curmudgeon of, oh, the kids today are too sensitive. Yeah. Yeah. I can only imagine what Gene Shepard would have thought about quote unquote millennials. I don't even want to know what Gene Shepard would have to say about Generation Z. I'm sure it would be nothing positive. I mean, this is the thing. This movie felt very boomer to me. This book feels even more boomer, but it's about, it's like, it's not okay. Cause the boomers we're not in the 40s. This is like the parents of the boomers, right? Because like my parents are boomers and they were born in the 50s and the 60s. Mm-hmm. In the 80s, they were making their families. They were new parents. They were they were starting. So like it was a kind of um, nostalgia, but not for their growing up, but the time before them, which it's always easier to be like, wasn't that nice when it wasn't actually yours? Do you know what I mean? Oh, mm-hmm. back then it was so nice, blah, 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 forgetting all the crap that actually was going on back then. And let's be honest, let's let's just call it out. Like this is a very white family, middle class. They have the money to buy the presents. This isn't, I, I really hated, I saw it multiple times when I was researching this. This is like the every man story. This is the Christmas story for all of us. And I'm like, no, this is the Christmas story for a very specific set of white people in a very specific set of circumstances. Can we, can we stop trying to paint with a broad brush? It doesn't have to be the story for all of us. Maybe there shouldn't be a thing for all of us. I don't know. Maybe we're different people. <laughs> uh, I couldn't help but notice during the first fantasy scene with ralphie when he's shooting the burglars they still kill the black guy first the mimes yes (laughs) yes i mean okay and the only other black people we see in the movie are there's some singing at the very beginning when they're all with the you know the the christmas lights and whatever Yeah, there's like a a couple children in the background which is which is nice um and then of course i mean we can't not mention the the horrible racism of the chinese restaurant and I, I love this. I saw this online. When Family Guy has a bit calling out your racism, <laughs> that's how you know. Because literally Family Guy, which is his own garbage heap, calls out the racism in this movie with the, with the Chinese singers. And the whole rest of that scene is so sweet. They're like happy to have customers they're going out you know what i mean and they're like trying to make the family feel welcome and it, it you're you're looking at the parents and the duck but like off to the side little ralphie's like crawling on the table trying to look at this duck right they didn't need the frog i'm not going to do it they didn't need the singing thing to make that scene sweet and loving and and awesome and they it was a choice to put it in and it didn't need to be there it kind of goes to changing times and this is where I'll say I'll have some sympathy for what's going on. When The Simpsons started, they had the character Apu, and they still do. At that time, it was just considered a funny little minor character. Now, there's a lot of criticism, and the show doesn't quite know what to do about it. Should Hank Azaria stop? Should they recast Apu? What should they do? Because now it's a caricature that wasn't recognized 30 years ago when the show started. And that seems to be the difference between racism and prejudice. Well... Okay, you had me up until there. I don't know about if that's the actual difference. I would say, though, I think the lesson of of your Simpsons thing is to maybe not have a television that um, goes multi-generational. 
that maybe if the Simpsons had only been 10 years, we could look at it and be like, okay, that was then. Now we know better. And when we make a new show, the Simpsons Z generation or whatever, we don't do that. We'd make different and better choices. But when you have something that becomes, are you talking racism because it's like institutionalized now? It's like this part of the thing and we can't get away from it? Well, that's kind of the question is they don't know what to do. So they recognize the criticism now that they've heard it and they go, okay, that is valid. Well, we've had this 30 year long character. What do we do now? Do we continue as we are? Do we continue to make it a problem? Do we try to be sensitive and, and change it up somehow? Well, we apparently don't wanna... their answer is to do nothing but seriously talk about it some more because they've had 15 plus years of, of knowing that this was like a problematic thing. So I, I feel like you can't just be like, yep, yep, it is a problem. God, what are we going to do about it? I know. Let's just keep churning out shows and not actually deal with it. Yeah, address it somehow. But that's why I'll say a Christmas story. It is racist. It is problematic. But it's also, I, I get that it was I, a humor at its time. And it wasn't great humor at its time. And it ages very poorly. But that's I'll, what it was. And I'll just say, like, there's another line, too. There's this thing about the Arab there, that's also said early that does not get as much attention as the, the, the Chinese people in the restaurant. And I will say the Arab line is problematic because it's racist, but it, it also is like in a vernacular of a person who lived and like that was that character. It was the dad. OK, on the one hand, like, OK, it's problematic, but this is a character in the 40s, like who's speaking as a character in the 40s. So that you can give it a pass. But then when you add in this Chinese that was not in the book that was written in the 60s, that was like literally just added in to make that scene better, to make it funny. And then you have to take this pretty, very nice little scene about this family coming together and, you know, finding something good on this, you know, day that's could potentially have been ruined. And then you take it another step by making fun of the Chinese people. That's when you kind of get into this, like, well, that's just totally not necessary. That, that to me is like the bumpus aspect. It's like, okay, we're not going to have the hillbillies. We're going to have the Chinese people and we're going to be a little bit mean about it. You know what, Kaylee, this is what I get for talking to a uh, war hating gun hating california hippie vegan <laughs> yes <laughs> you just don't get it <laughs> yeah that's so true so true it's your own fault really <laughs> um and i mean and the, the thing too is in the in the book when they go to the chop suey restaurant it's not a joyful meal there are quiet nobody talks everybody's upset the mom's the kind is, of laugh crying the, no no in the book Mm. In the book, it is yeah. an awful experience. Nobody talks, nobody laughs. Everybody is sad. The dad is still really mad and like plotting revenge against the neighbors. Like it is like a tense, not, and in the movie, again, they make it so much better by making it like this family bonding experience. And even having not really seen the movie or known too much about it, um, the idea of the Chinese food on Christmas, like permeates. My partner and I have had Chinese food. That used to be our Christmas tradition was to eat Chinese food. We were usually traveling on Christmas day and we would have Chinese food almost every year on Christmas. And hmm. now we're not traveling this year. We might still have Chinese food this year because it's like, oh, hey, look, it's our Christmas tradition. So I, I mean, there, to your point, there are elements here that, that work really well in the movie. Everything I liked in the movie was not in the book. Like all these, like, like almost all, or almost just all. just kind of an uglier version of it. 
in yeah in the book they were uh, uglier in the movie they were they were nicer they were they were cleaned up they were and and again maybe that's just because like i was born in 1980 so like something in the 80s with a little bit more 80s mentality is going to speak to me more than something in the 60s like i said it before i'll say it again this it's very boomer So Jennifer, what did you think about this book and movie? Is it are they worth your time? <laughs> I found the book to be disheartening. I expected a lot more from it. I, I I get the sense that you don't really care for this film that much. I still love it. I know it's been played ad nauseum and people are starting to kind of get sick of it, which is understandable because they always do the 24-hour thing. You have to take a break from the movie, but I still think there's so many pitch perfect moments. In my family, we kept making that joke uh, about the mom, you know, mom hasn't had a hot meal in 15 years because she would constantly get up and we would be willing to go get up and get our own fork or whatever. But that was our mom. She just kept getting up. It was like, mom, sit down. We'll get the thing. And so that became a family joke. But see, that's funny because you're subversing it by not making her do it. In the movie, it's played for laughs because, oh, that's just what moms do. They don't ever get to eat a hot meal. Ha, 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 ha. Frown. <laughs> you should take a screenshot of your face <laughs> on that part. <laughs> yeah, I mean, no shock. I didn't, I really disliked this book. I can totally see the why people like this movie. I feel like this is popular because it's popular. It's known because it's known because they do it for 24 hours on two different cable channels now. So because it's just something that, you know, it's familiar. Have you ever listened to a song on the radio and been like, oh God, I don't like that song, but then it just keeps getting played. And six months later, you're like, bopping your head along the next time it comes on and it's not even that you like it it's just that now it's so familiar that you know it so it becomes non-offensive because it's just okay now it's just noise it's just music it's just fine I've accepted it because I can't get away from this song so I'm just gonna like nod along and wait for the next song that is this movie to me this movie is not great but it's fine and it has some good things it has some not so good things and it's just overplayed to the point where now it's just such a background thing people wander in and out it's 24 hours you don't really have to pay attention everybody knows it blah blah blah, blah. it's become part of the thing and i'm very curious if in 20 years anybody's still watching this movie and if if it's going to translate for the couple generations because i already feel a disconnect in just in my age and my sense of morality as opposed to you know the next generation people like this movie are probably our age or older it's hard for me to imagine people in their 20s stumbling across this if it's just not constantly in the background you know what i mean like i'm mm -hmm. thinking now about my daughter's generation where when we watch something it's intentional because it's streaming we don't just put on a cable channel or whatever and just let it go we don't use tv as background noise and i know i'm not in the minority here a lot of people are now like cutting the cords they're not watching live television they're being more particular and choosy what they watch and so if you do that then you're not going to have that same relationship with certain types of nostalgia things and i i am very curious to see if this actually is a is a movie that can hold up because my bet would yeah, that'll be interesting to me it's still a great film especially for all the little details i i love it when the mother kind of looks at the soap after ralphie's had it in his mouth and she gives it a try it's human there's a lot of really human this isn't always very pretty it's not always nice 
disappointments and you have your, your people pulling together. And again, that part, not in the book. Um, the other thing that the mom does, it's not in the book. There are two other things that she does that are great is one is she tricks the little boy into eating by making him be like a piggy, which is disgusting yeah. and funny and also like very real to life. And then the other thing, which is really lovely, probably my second favorite part of the entire movie after the parents sitting on the couch is when the little boy is under the he's in a cupboard or whatever and the mom's like are you okay and he's like yeah he just wants to be in there and she gives him a glass of milk and shuts the door and just lets him be in there mm -hmm. and that is way progressive of, of a parenting thing to like meet the kid where they're at and be like it's okay you don't have to be out like it's fine that is a beautiful moment of love between the mom and the little boy i like that that quiet little moment which again not in any of the books or any of the stories. That is such a loving thing. It's in the same movie where we have like a five minute montage of her putting clothing on the child, which is played for laughs. Oh my God, so many bundles, all the, the coats and the this and the that, and then the scarf around the head. And you know, the kid's gonna have to get to school and unbundle so he can sit in class. And then no one's gonna bundle him back up the way the mom did, but somehow he magically gets rebundled to come home. So it's, it's so exaggerated. And I know that that's part of it, but for my viewing pleasure, the quiet moments of the mom being loving to the kid is so much better and is going to stay in my head longer than the over bundling the child. Do you know what I mean? Just for a cheap laugh. That seems very like adult perspective, child perspective. You know, when you watch a really good children's film, there's stuff for adults. And so the kids will like the bundling bit because it's laugh and comedy. And then there's something for Kalia to go, oh, that was a sweet moment. I love that. Yeah. Yeah. And, and my, my daughter did like the kid getting bundled up. She liked it because <clears throat> a couple of years ago, back in the days when we actually took her to school and she didn't do it in the dining room, there was a morning where we bundled her up quite, quite thoroughly with the hat and the scarf and the gloves and the thing on her face and the special coat. And I opened the door and I was like, let's go. We got to walk to the bus stop. And she was like, no. And she almost started to cry because we'd forgotten to put shoes on her. So, um, oh, that's cute. Oops. It's, it was so cute. We actually took a picture of her standing there completely all bundled up with just her little socks. And I think it's still on, uh, on Matthew's computer right now as the background. I get those little moments, you know, and they're, they're cute that you're right. Like that, that, and the movie did do a decent job in some times of being from the kid's perspective. Like even sometimes the camera angles were low down to be at a child's perspective. So the film itself, I mean, <sighs> some of the filming choices were, were, were well done, I will say. And, and I don't like hate this movie. I just, it, it's, uh, I would say if you haven't seen it somehow, it's probably okay to watch. And if you're over 35, you'll probably be like, oh yeah, ha ha. And if you're, I, I, I don't know, man. I feel like if you're in your twenties and you have yet to see this movie, if you come to it and you're younger, you're going to be like, this isn't cool, man. Like this isn't cool. So that's my thoughts. My relatives who are younger seem to enjoy it. They've watched it. I'm saying if you come to it now, if you are a- Yeah, that happened. Okay, my stepnephew, well... who was, I think he was 19 at the time. He had never seen it. I was like, oh, how could you have not seen the Christmas story? It's canon. Well, there Just you go. You a little An bit there. Exception that proves the rule, I suppose. I, I, you're right. You know what? What the hell do I know? I, it is what it is. And now that I've seen it again, pushing 40, I don't feel the urge to ever watch it again. I think I'm good. I read this great little line um, on the internet 
and it says it's like the Applebee's for the silent generation. <laughs> Ouch. Yep. But I thought it worked really well <laughs> because it's like it's not great, but sometimes it's kind of what you want. But also like depending on where you started from, that might not be where you want to end up. So yeah, the Applebee's of 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 Christmas movies. Okay, so obviously we are not sponsored by Applebee's. <laughs> All right, so I still think the movie's cute. I think it's adorable. I think there's some really fantastic moments. I like the comedy. It's still there for me. Okay, but skip the book. But yeah, stay away from the book. The book's just, nah. Yeah. You're not going to get the same charm. It's not charming in the no. way that the movie is. The book is not charming at all. And that's our episode of Pages and Popcorn <laughs> Podcast. We're heading into the holiday season, or we're already in the holiday season this year. And uh, so happy holidays to all of our listeners. Thank you again to our patrons. Thank you again to those who like and share us on the social medias. Thank you again to all of you who just listen and enjoy. Thank you to Jennifer for putting up with my rants. Well, they are delightful rants. Thank you to Zoom (laughs) and Audacity. Thank you to, I don't know, I'm just feeling magnanimous now. Thank you to the coffee that I'm drinking right now. Thank you to Podcast Cat. Thank you to Podcast Cat. I love it when we record things out of order. It just really throws me. (laughs) I'm so confused about what day it is and and why. (laughs) And, And okay, anyways. So this episode is going to come out before Christmas. Yes. Okay, got it. I know where we are, even though we're not there. I still feel like it's August, but it's not. Okay. <laughs> That's a very long rambly intro. Are you ready? Are you? I am. You're ready. You're the one who's ready. I'm the one who's struggling over here today for some reason. Okay. Well, that's that's the magic of editing. <laughs> yes, I'll make it look so polished. They'll be like, wow, look at those professional podcast ladies over there.